Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. It is just the coolest thing that we get to talk about the future of foreign policy with Elmira Byrasli. Elmira, thank you for joining us on Future of XYZ today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Um, well, I mean, your background is quite extraordinary. I mean, you started the Council on Foreign Relations after graduating from Columbia. You know, you you served in, you know, you worked for an agency of the UN, you know, during the Bosnia-Herzegovina kind of uh, time period. You served as an assistant, if I'm not mistaken, to Madeleine Albright when she was Secretary of State at the U.S. Department of State. Is that is that true? Yeah, I did. I started actually working for her when she was the U.S. Ambassador to the UN, and then moved down in 1994 um, to work in her office out of Washington and then was just there when she became Secretary of State. It's remarkable and obviously her having passed just a few months ago is, is quite heartbreaking. It was a huge loss. I saw her speak once and um, you know I was a poli-sci undergrad and have always loved this idea of foreign policy, diplomacy, international affairs, current relations, whatever we're going to call it, you know, but foreign policy for this. And she was, she was, you know, uh, a, a beast on that. I mean, just so brilliant and, and, and so classy at the same time as one woman in a room of many, many men. Well, I mean, I think you have to be, if you are someone like Madeleine Albright, who is one of the pioneers of leadership, female leadership in foreign policy, um, she most definitely was a force of nature, but I think most importantly, she really knew her stuff. And when you, when you take a look at what foreign policy has traditionally been, which is very much a white man's game, as a woman, you really need to not only know your stuff, but you really need to be able to step it up and be able to go in there and, and do the interrupting that is necessary. Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting that 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 is. I have a dog who's going crazy in the background. Sorry. So I have. I think it's so interesting that that's true. I'm reading um, the biography of Angela Merkel right now, um, and there's so much. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's brilliant, and and it's just so remarkable because again knowing yourself better than anyone else in the room, including the other leadership, you know, the other leader that you're going toe to toe with. And there's some great analogies and especially obviously her strained relationship with Vladimir Putin is, is, is quite profound um, and always making sure to, to know her stuff more. <clears throat> but I want to get into a little bit of kind of the current state of foreign policy, if you will. I mean, we, I, I mentioned Putin. I mean, obviously, we are in a state of war as we're recording this um, with the Ukraine, you know, kind of being unrightfully invaded uh, and the atrocities that are unfolding. But it, it is not only the Ukraine, of course. We've had Afghanistan for a number of years. We've had Syria for the better part of a decade. Uh, all sorts of places in Africa are constantly in risk of genocide and or tribal war. I mean, it's it's really quite a remarkable time. Um, so I want to get into kind of what the current state of foreign policy is, if you don't mind. I mean, Let's in your it. opinion, what is it? 
Well, I think what we're seeing now with, um, I think, Putin invading Ukraine at the end of February is very much this um, uncertainty that we have in the global landscape. Um, you know, I think if you actually let's rewind and take a look at what foreign policy was, which is a place that I think the United States still believes foreign policy is, it's in the 20th century when the US was very much a superpower and had all of this economic and military might and called a lot of shots. And so whether it was at the UN or at NATO or with, with Western Europe, I think there was this sense of the United States will lead and everybody else will follow. Today, what we're seeing, Putin has gone into Ukraine. It is not the first time that he has done that. In 2014, he invaded the Crimea and he annexed it. The United States and Europe just leveled sanctions against him and really didn't do much else. And I think Putin had this sense of where is American leadership? And where is that Western alliance? And I think he saw the debacle of a pullout of Afghanistan last August that the United States um, was guilty of. And I think he thought, you know, I don't think America is, is that superpower anymore. And he saw a window and he took it. I think much to his chagrin and he actually, I think, is very surprised at how coordinated the U.S. along with NATO and EU allies have been against his actions. Yeah. And so I think what we're seeing right now at this moment, if you're asking wh where, what's the state of foreign policy, I think it's very much in flux. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're recording this the day after the, you know, Anthony Blinken and a few others from the US State Department um, went to Kiev to meet with Vladimir Zelensky. And that's a pretty remarkable feat. Of course, you know, Boris Johnson's been there. I mean, other other world leaders have already made this statement, but obviously the US kind of doubling and tripling down on both financial as well as military aid while not being directly involved in the engagement is, is really interesting. And I think you're right that the decline of US hegemony, which has been a status quo since the end of World War II in, you know, um, I, I think is really opening eyes and doors and, and how this, this situation plays out is, is going to have material bearing on what we see as the future of a foreign policy, I would imagine. And, but I also think it's not just this decline of US hegemony, it's also the rise of other powers, right? And so we have seen the rise of China. Um, China has now the second strongest economy in the world. China is pouring a lot more money and finances into its defense. It's becoming much more of a regional power in Asia. But if you take a look, it's not just China. A lot of previously what we've, we've called lesser developed countries have really emerged, emerging market countries, countries like India. And if you actually take note, India has not taken a side on the Ukraine-Russia um, conflict. Wow. Um, you know, and India has very much stayed silent. Um, if you take a look at other countries that have actually traditionally been US allies and gone along <laughs> with the United States and no longer do that, I think Turkey is a good example of that. Turkey is a member of NATO. Um, but Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has really kind of said, I'm going, I'm going my, my own way. 
Um, Brazil is another power. Mexico, I think, is another Mexico. Power. Obrador's recent recall. I, I mean, referendum. I mean, I, I, it's it. You've just gone through, and of course, Trump, right? And and what's happened in America? I mean, you've just gone through kind of the major countries who have this rising. It's being called populism, of course. You know, we had election yesterday in France. I mean, there is a lot happening where the the democratic or the you know the, the the norms among us are kind of sitting and waiting on bated breath for what's going where the next shoe is going to drop i think you know and what does what are the implications of it and then therefore as a policy play what does that mean for diplomacy you know what does that mean in the un when russia holds you know a veto i mean how does how does foreign policy play out in this fractured world of like democratic values and autocratic values, which seem to kind of be, you know, going this way, but ultimately are on a collision course. Well, I think what we have to do is take a step back and understand that the nature of foreign policy has radically changed. It used to be this um, interaction between by, by capitals. So you had Washington dealing with Moscow or London or Paris or Beijing. But now what we're having, what we're seeing now with globalization, so much has profoundly changed. And, you know, you, you took note about the French elections and how well Marine Le Pen did and, and the extreme right. And Donald Trump here in the United States and the rise of, of the extreme right here in the United States. And I would say that's actually a reaction to what is happening overseas. So you see the rise of China, you see the rise of India, you see the rise of Turkey, you see the rise of Brazil. And what do all of those countries have in common? They have populist leaders. But the people who are getting behind those leaders are getting behind them for a different reason that, than we in the United States or the people in France are getting behind, behind people like Marine Le Pen or Donald Trump. And here's why. For a long time, the United States is always really focused on let's let's get every let's global development, let's get everybody, um, you know, jobs and and revive economies, and that's great. But now that that's happened, I think the United States has said, oh, now all of these countries are advanced. What is our place in the world? And they ha and the United States and much of Western Europe hasn't really been able to figure that out. Yeah. And so. In the same way that I think now people in China and Turkey and Brazil and India are super proud that their economies have grown and they've developed this, this confidence, um, you know, there is this clash that we're seeing, but the populists that we're seeing overseas are very different than the populists we're seeing at home. I think that's such an interesting distinction and not one that is often thought about, in, including for, for me, right? I mean, the reasons are, are very different. I mean, you're obviously the co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, which is in, a kind of a media incubator, if you will, aimed at increasing the diversity of voices, especially women commenting on foreign affairs from an op-ed. You write a lot, you've written a book on international, kind of the global globalization of entrepreneurship, if you will. Um, you write for everyone from the New York Times to TechCrunch. I mean, you, you're, you're the director at Bard College for Globalization, and I think it's the International Affairs Program. I mean, you have so much expertise, Elmira, in this space. You know, you've been doing it forever. I mean, I think, what are some of the fixes as we talk about all these 
things that are happening that are changing foreign policy from what it was to what it is, this thing in flux. As we look to the future of foreign policy, what are some of the like, I don't know, let's call it fixes, you know, for better responsiveness. I mean, especially amidst this rise of populism in different ways, as well as social media and disinformation that is just kind of aggravating this, this situation. Well, I think what we really need to do is actually really reassess what we mean by leadership. And I know that one of your podcasts was looking at leadership. And I think it really hit the head on the nail where um, your conversation was talking about how leaders today need to be much more empathetic mm-hmm. and actually listen and connect with people. You know, leadership is no longer being the head of something and, you know, kind of putting out a number of commands. It's not top down, right? It really needs to be, it needs to be about grassroots and it needs to be about connecting with one another. And the reality is when we take a look, when we take a look at traditional foreign policy, it has always been about national security. It's always been about how do we protect our borders? How do we protect you know, our land and and the things that we've had. And so we've always looked at foreign policy through this one dimensional military lens. Well, the reality is when we take a look at the challenges today, the global pandemic, COVID-19, climate change, extremism, poverty, all of these things are transnational issues that do not affect just one singular country. They affect all of us. And the consequences as we're seeing are, you know, are affecting the economy, they're, they're impacting migration, inflation, inflation, and all of these things. And what we really need to start to do is actually take a back, take, have military and national security take a backseat. And what we start needing to do is bringing in the perspectives and, and the solution makers who are actually going to be experts in those fields and develop policy in that way. Yep. Yep, that makes that makes absolute sense. And I think that that I mean, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead, but given what foreign policy interrupted's mission is, I'm going to say, and I think many of us as women would argue going back to Madeleine Albright and, and Angela Merkel, right, is that the role of women as natural diplomats, as seeing more nuance and more less militaristic and, you know, less rigid, I would say, you know, what is the role of women as well as just diversity of voices, you know, foreign policy being this like staunch, you know, like Princeton, you know, Woodrow Wilson school kind of kind of motto historically. I mean, how do we involve more women? Like what is like kind of next gen leadership to your point on, you know, on leadership and education? What's it? How do we do this? I'm glad that you asked that. I've been part of a movement called feminist foreign policy. It's something that the Swedes pioneered in 2014, um, very much to make sure that they had equal representation in foreign policy circles, but then they're also that they were investing in gender issues, um, maternal health care, women's issues. Um, since then, Mexico, France, and Canada have gone on to adopt it. It looks like Germany is getting on board with feminist foreign policy. But here in the United States, I think what we need to do is adopt feminist foreign policy, but not make it about women's issues or gender, but precisely the things that we've just been talking about, a change in leadership and an approach and taking issues like climate change, like global health, like extremism and like poverty alleviation and, inc- and folding them into 
the importance of national security equally as important as protecting protecting your borders. Yeah. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. And 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 yet we don't have the time to raise a whole new generation, you know, so we need some people to kind of be attracted in and pivot in sooner rather than later, it feels like. Yeah. And what we really need to do is look, the experts are there. I mean, I work on this day in and day out, and there are women who are working on these issues across the board, whether it's nuclear weapons or whether it is pub global public health, and they're there. And what we need to do is we need to bring them to the table, not because they're women. We need to bring them to the table because they have a different experience and perspective. And it's that experience and perspective that is so profoundly important to getting to the necessary solutions that the world needs today. I mean, we're going to keep going for a few minutes, but that's like a mic drop <laughs> kind of kind of quote. I like I like it a lot and I couldn't agree more, of course. Um, but it is it's bringing different people to the table, being more inclusive in what foreign policy means, looks like and who gets to do it um, and being more. I, it sounds like to me, you're also talking about inclusivity of like, you know, U.S. hegemony, waning, rising other powers but be more inclusive of, you know, instead of this, you know, kind of post-World War II mentality of like blocks of countries and blocks of power, but really trying to equalize and saying we're in this together because many of our issues are global and they there's a ricochet effect, right? I mean, it's whatever, 83 million refugees in the world. This is pre, you know, pre-Ukraine even, you know, many of those, of course, are displaced within their own countries, which of course now is even greater. Um, but climate change issues, refugees, et cetera, this is all going to become um, really, really, really more pertinent at, with each passing year. I think just as a last question, I mean, you write a lot, you've written a lot, you know, what you do has to do with journalism. I mean, when we see disinformation, I mean, right now we're hearing, if you watch Russian state media, you're getting a story A, you know, Z being the letter. And, and if you're listening to anywhere else in the Western world, other than Tucker Carlson, you are going to be getting, you know, a very different storyline. So what is the role of journalism in this world that seems very bifurcated? It's so profoundly important. And this is also where the media industry really needs to take a look at who is producing the news, who is, who are the editors taking in the op-eds, who are the editors assigning the stories, because that also feeds into disinformation and misinformation. Yeah. And making sure that those newsrooms and uh, the, the media studios actually look like the communities that, that we live in. Um, and when I take a look at it, fighting disinformation, the big, one of the biggest um, targets of disinformation, misinformation are women. And so, you know, when you're talking about all of these populist leaders, whether it's Putin or Duterte in the Philippines or um, Modi in, in India or Erdogan in Turkey, you know, they do target women. Yeah. And it's about, you know, coming down and targeting women and making, creating fear, creating fear and making them feel uncomfortable. And the sad reality is they do it because it's been done before. Yeah, of course. So they, they just feed on something that already exists. And the media really needs to do a better job in highlighting female stories, in countering the disinformation, but also diversifying their, their newsrooms and making sure that the people who are actually gathering the news 
and bringing us, whether it's the stories on television, across digital media, or through the New York Times, are the, the people that make up our society today. It, it needs to be representative journalism as well as representative democracy, it sounds like. Absolutely. Um, and representative foreign policy. Um, Elmira, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise. These 20 minutes always go way too fast, especially on a uh, very far reaching and global topic such as the future of foreign policy. Um, but thank you for joining us. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Um, and for everyone uh, paying attention and listening, uh, make sure that you subscribe to Future of XYZ. If you don't already, uh, we're on YouTube as well as all your favorite streaming podcast platforms. And you can follow us at uh, Future of XYZ on Instagram or visit future-of.xyz to catch up on all the latest episodes with brilliant people like Elmira Vasari. Thank you so much again, Future of Foreign Policy. Let's hope it is a good one. Thanks for listening to The Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to The Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.